remain standing in honor of God's Word. This morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 7, beginning at verse 1 through Acts chapter 8, verse 1. That is a long section. Uh, What we're going to do is just read a few verses. We won't read through the whole section. Um, I had thought about dividing it up into more manageable portions, but I think it's best if we get the big picture because Stephen has a, a sermon that he's trying to get across. So I think it'll be more productive to see the big picture. So we'll just look at the highlights. Obviously, we won't be able to cover all 61 verses here. You would be here too long. Uh, chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go to the land that I will show you. Verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. And dropping down to verse 30. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew nearer to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then dropping down to verse 47. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the Righteous One, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at Him. But He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at Him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, once again, we thank You for Your Word. 
And I want to ask this morning that it would go forth with great power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. May we be challenged, rebuked, and encouraged by the first Christian martyr, Stephen, who testified gloriously of our Lord Jesus Christ and was willing even to lay down his life for his Lord and Savior. May he challenge us. May we walk in his footsteps. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Toward the end of Jesus' ministry on earth, he warned his disciples that all kinds of terrible experiences were just around the corner for them. Experiences that would include betrayal, even family betrayal, hatred, imprisonment, persecution, and even death. This is what Jesus told his disciples in Luke 21, verses 12 and following. He told them, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. So the disciples knew what awaited them. Jesus was very forthright. He was very direct about what was around the corner for them. Now, I find it interesting in this passage that sandwiched between persecution on the one hand and hatred on the other is an opportunity. He tells them in verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. And one of the things we need to realize as Christians that our vocation, our calling, our purpose, if you will, is to bear witness to Jesus Christ. That's what we are called to do. Bear witness to Jesus Christ. Now, if you keep one finger in Luke 21 and you turn back to Acts, uh, if you were to ask me what is the key verse in the book of Acts, I would say it's Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8. It gives us the outline of the book and it basically tells us what the whole book is about. Luke tells us, uh, quoting Jesus, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Acts begins with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And many have called the book of Acts the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And that is a quite accurate title as well. Because we see the Holy Spirit outpoured on the disciples and they go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit and what do they do? They bear witness to Jesus Christ. That's why we have the Holy Spirit so that we can be witnesses. Now, I find that interesting as well. Notice that we are to be witnesses, not just do witnessing. Who we are and how we live our lives, in addition to what we say, is all part of being a witness for Jesus Christ. St. Francis of Assisi is known for saying, preach the gospel at all times. 
If necessary, use words. <laughs> now, of course, technically speaking, there is no gospel without us verbalizing about the life, death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the reign of Jesus Christ. But his point is still a good point. Even our lives, how we live, bears witness to the reality of the gospel. How we live lets people know that Jesus Christ really does change people. He really can transform our lives. So witnessing is not just something that we do. It's not something that we say only. It also has to do with how we live our lives on a regular basis. And it can be as simple as being the only one in a foursome on a golf course that doesn't swear. Or it can be as simple as the only lady in a gathering that says, you know what, we shouldn't be engaging in gossip. This isn't appropriate. And those simple things can be powerful. Now, I also find it fascinating that back in Luke 21, Jesus tells His disciples, Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Now, some have taken that to an extreme and they think you just walk up to the pulpit and you expect God to give you the words. And some might even rebuke me saying, what, what do you have all those notes for? What did you do all that studying for? What Jesus promised. Settle in your mind ahead of time. Don't meditate on what you're going to say, Pastor Wayne. You just walk up there and God will give you the words. That would be very nice. <laughs> uh, that has to be harmonized with 1 Peter 3.15 where Peter tells us, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the hope that you have. Be ready to give an answer. Think about your answer ahead of time, how you are going to respond. And I don't know for certain, but I think when Stephen was seized, he thought about how he would respond, and I also think God gave them the words. I think this is a specific promise to the first disciples that God would give them the words when they needed it in a difficult situation. So we have to harmonize these two passages. I remember one time Bill Hybels said he was talking to another pastor and this pastor was amazed that he spent 15 to 20 hours on a single sermon. And this pastor said, I just walk into the pulpit and expect a miracle. I said, I wanted to ask if you ever got one. He said, better yet, I should ask his people. So I think we need to be careful. We rely on the Holy Spirit. We pray that He will give us the words. But at the same time, we need to think about how we're going to respond. Now, that first Peter passage is also interesting for another reason because it talks about having an answer ready so that you can bear witness to Jesus Christ. And then verse 16 goes on and it says, Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed. I think that's interesting. Notice that Peter doesn't separate our defense from our very lives. The two go together. And in fact, he says, when you give your defense, if you have a clear conscience because you're living a godly life, you're sincerely trying to honor God and all that you do, your defense is even stronger. 
Because while people may revile you and mock you for your good behavior, they're going to know that you really are a righteous person. And that will make your words all the more powerful. So we want our words to go forth. We want to give a good defense. And if our lives back up with what we say, it makes it all the more powerful. A good example of how this plays out is seen in the life of Mother Teresa. Uh, We can put aside her Catholic theology for the moment. But back in 1994, some of you will recall that she was the guest speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. And among other things, this is what she said. And she said this with uh, then-President Bill Clinton and Hillary by her side and Al Gore and his wife uh, by his side, along with other people present. She said, I feel that the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion. Because it is war against a child. A direct killing of the innocent child. Murder by the mother herself. And if we accept that a mother can kill even her own child, how can we tell other people not to kill one another? How do we persuade a woman not to have an abortion? As always, we must persuade her with love. And we remind ourselves that love means to be willing to give until it hurts. Jesus gave even His life to love us. So the mother who is thinking of abortion should be helped to love. That is to give until it hurts her plans or her free time to respect the life of her child. The father of that child, whoever he is, must also give until it hurts. By abortion, the mother does not learn to love, but even kills her own child to solve her problems. And by abortion, the father is told that he does not have to take responsibility at all for the child he has brought into the world. That father is likely to put other women into the same trouble. So abortion just leads to more abortion. Any country that accepts its abortion is not teaching its people to love, but to use any violence to get what they want. This is why the greatest destroyer to love and peace is abortion. There was silence for just a moment, and then there was applause, and then Mother Teresa received a standing ovation. But not everybody stood up. President Bill Clinton, Hillary, Al Gore, and his wife remain seated. She went on and she finished her speech that she had that day. And then Bill Clinton stood up and his response was, it's hard to argue with a life so well lived. Isn't that powerful? It's hard to argue with a life so well lived. Because Mother Teresa had given her whole life to serve the poor. It was hard to refute her defense, because what she said went hand in hand with how she lived her life, which made her words all the more powerful. So even those who disagreed with her politics had to admit that she lived well and they didn't have much to say. Again, our calling as Christians is to bear witness to Jesus Christ, even if it cost us our lives. And it did cost Stephen his life. Stephen had the privilege, and it really was a privilege. Stephen had the privilege of becoming the first Christian martyr. Now, you kids know what a martyr is? You know what that word is? Uh, That word martyr is a very interesting word. It's martyr in English, and it comes from the Greek word martyros, which means witness. 
So a martyr became a person who witnessed to Jesus Christ to such an extent that it resulted in execution of some kind. And Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr, the first New Covenant martyr, if you will. And he was executed in his situation by stoning. He was brutally stoned to death. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you'll recall that Stephen is basically arrested and put on trial before this council because he's a zealous Christian. That's all he is. He's a zealous Christian. We read back in 6.8 that Stephen was full of grace and power. He was doing wonders and signs among the people, which means he was probably healing people, performing miracles, perhaps casting out demons. And because of that, his adversaries hated him. They tried to dispute with him. They couldn't withstand the wisdom, the spirit with which he was speaking. So they secretly instigated men to come against them. Uh, probably they bribed them um, to speak against Stephen. And they set up false witnesses, verse 13 says. And they said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. Those are the two charges. Very important. Pay attention to that. They bring two charges against Stephen. He's speaking against the holy place, the temple, and the law of Moses. They go on and say in verse 14, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So Stephen is speaking about the temple and the law, and he is relaying what Jesus said, that the temple will be destroyed, and we won't get into all that, and that the customs of Moses are going to be changed. So those are the two charges. Stephen's going to address those charges in a moment. But even before he gives his defense, the council, the Sanhedrin, and by the way, most likely Saul was a member of the Sanhedrin. He is right there watching all this. And he's doing more than watching, as we saw a little later. He is giving his approval. Saul is watching all this. And they all know that Stephen is innocent. How do they know? Because look what Luke interjects, verse 15. And gazing at him, all, not just some, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Have you ever seen the face of an angel? I know we might say something like, oh, she has the face of an angel. You know, I think my daughter has the face of an angel. <laughs> this is much more literal than that. When they looked at Stephen, they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Have they ever seen an angel's face before? I don't think so. But this was about as close as they were ever going to get in their life. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, I think it means that Stephen's face was radiating with the glory of God. Like when Moses was in God's presence for 40 days and 40 nights up on the mountain, and then he came down from the mountain and he didn't even realize that his face was radiating with the glory of God. And it was so bright and so terrifying that the Israelites ran away from him and asked him to cover his face. And he did for their sake. Stephen's put on trial and something similar is taking place. They're looking at the face 
of an angel. Somehow it is glowing. And they know they're looking at the face of an angel, which already, before he even opens his mouth to defend himself, is God's vindication that he's innocent. But they continue on anyways, and the high priest says to him, Are these things so? And he needs to understand right up front that they know this is a setup. They put together the false witnesses. They know he's innocent, but they don't care. Just like they didn't care that Jesus was innocent because his ministry is growing and they have to stop this because it threatens them. And by the way, I also want you to notice or be aware of right up front that Stephen is well aware that his life is on the line. Let's not think of Stephen as some young, naive, new Christian who's just zealous and he's going to preach this sermon and he has no idea of the ramifications. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. We're told that several times. He was full of wisdom, knowledge, insight. He's not a dummy. He knows exactly what's going to take place. He knows if I testify to Jesus Christ, it's going to cost me my life. And I think he makes a very calculated decision. Since I'm on trial, since most likely it's going to cost me my life, then what do I have to lose? Why not just let it all out and testify to Jesus Christ and leave the results in His hands? So he knows exactly what he's doing. He's being bold and he's being bold intentionally. So he begins his defense, which I really think is more of a sermon. It's a defense of them accusing him of speaking against the temple and against the law, but it's a sermon. And he's really turning the tables. And by the time this is over, he's putting them on trial. But notice how he begins. And we're just going to look at a few points here. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go to the land that I will show you. Now, I can still recall uh, back in Genesis, uh, in chapter 12, when we came to this passage that he's referring to right here, and God told Abraham to go. I can remember reading one of the commentaries that said God spoke to Abraham, but we don't know how he made himself known to Abraham. And I remember thinking, we're not told in Genesis, but perhaps we're given a glimpse in Acts. Notice very carefully. The God of glory appeared to Abraham. Not just spoke. If it had just said the God of glory spoke to Abraham, we could take this as God's glory. And he spoke to Abraham. Maybe Abraham heard a voice or in a dream God spoke to him. But it doesn't say that. It says the God of glory appeared to Abraham. And, and maybe this is just my mind wanting to be real tangible and wanting to picture this. But it seems that God made His glory known to Abraham like He did to Moses. He made His glory known to Abraham and He spoke to him out of that glory. Now, why does Stephen begin his speech right here? Because the Jews loved the temple. Because the temple was the place where God made Himself known. The desire of the Jew, as the psalmist said, was to behold the beauty of the Lord, which is found in His temple. 
And here they're accusing Stephen of speaking against the temple. And Stephen's letting them know, you think God's glory is isolated to that temple? Let me remind you of our history. The God of glory appeared to Abraham and before he ever got to the promised land, before he ever got to Haran, while he was still back in Mesopotamia worshiping idols with his family, false gods, God made Himself known to him in all His glory and splendor. God cannot be confined to a building. That's Stephen's main point. And that's why when he moves on to verse 9, he then talks about Joseph and he talks about how he was sold into Egypt. But God was with him. God was with him when he was sold, when he went down to Egypt. And it's a reminder, you think God is confined to the temple. You think that's the place to worship. And remember, the first century, where you worship was a big deal. Remember the woman at the well? Where's the proper place to worship? You know, we say here, you say that. Where's the proper place? And Jesus, a time's coming when the place is going to be completely irrelevant. It's not going to matter. But Stephen's reminding his people that God has always been with his people. He was with Abraham, made himself known to Abraham. He was with Joseph through all that he did. And he was with Jacob and his family in Egypt as well. God's favor was upon them. And then it's as though he says, and remember Moses. Moses was in Egypt. He tried to deliver the people. And then he went away into the wilderness. And then 40 years later after that, when he was 80 years old, what happened? An angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. When Moses was in the wilderness, God came to him and made Himself known to Moses in a powerful way that caused him to tremble. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. It's a reminder that God made Himself known to Moses in the wilderness. And don't think that holy ground is confined to the holy land. Holy ground is wherever our holy God is. Moses was standing on holy ground in the wilderness because God was there. Do not think that God is confined to that temple, however beautiful it is right there. Don't think that God is confined to that building. God has not just committed Himself to a place. God has committed Himself to His people to take care of them and to speak to them. And then from there... Stephen continues on and he talks about Solomon. Verse 47, But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet said, and here he quotes from Isaiah, Heaven is my throne, and the earth, and I'm paraphrasing here, is nothing more than my footstool. Place for me to put my feet up. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? And what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? You, you can't confine God to a building, however majestic and glorious it may be. God is so much bigger than that. 
So Stephen's telling the people, you think it's all about the temple. God has always been with His people and God has never been confined to that place. And when Solomon built it, he never imagined that God would be confined to that house right there because God is much bigger than that. And this is very important because the Gospel is going to go out from Jerusalem, where the temple is, to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And it's a reminder to the people and to all the disciples that God will be with you wherever you go because we serve a big God. A God that creates everything and is always with His people. So He's defending His view of the temple and helping to see that they really didn't understand the place of the temple. And then the law. He's already talked about Moses and how God had called him. So He's very clear that He believes Moses was called of God. But even Moses wanted the people to look for someone beyond himself. In verse 38 we read, This was the one who in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai with our fathers, he received the oracles. But what did he say? God will raise up for you, verse 37, a prophet like me from your brothers. Quote from Deuteronomy 18. 15. Moses is not the last prophet. And of course, this prophet finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Another prophet is coming. Moses is not the end of God's oracles or God's revelation. Another prophet is coming and they need to listen to him. And realize for Stephen, this is not just Old Testament history that he's reviewing. Remember, he is tying this into Christ. He's defending Jesus, but he's helping them to see that everything in the Old Testament looks forward to Christ. And it's very subtle, but you need to know these Jews did not overlook the subtlety. They understood what the implications were. And then we get to verse 51. And I just have to ask you, if you were Stephen, if you were put on trial to defend your view against the temple and the law, after your rehearsal of Old Testament Israelite history, would this have been your application? <laughs> so Stephen's saying, so there's the basic body of the sermon. Now let's get right to the application. Let me apply it to you guys. <laughs> to the congregation right in front of me. Would this have been your application? You... Stiff-necked people. I don't know how he said it. But regardless of how he said it, would you have said it? You stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in hearts and ears. You're uncircumcised in hearts and ears. You live like pagans. Your heart hasn't been circumcised. Your ears haven't been circumcised. Your religion is external only. It hasn't penetrated your very being. You're just like pagans. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. And throughout this sermon, he had also told them about how the people rebelled, especially against Moses. Yeah, Moses was a great prophet. He gave the people the law. And what did they do? They rebelled against Moses and they raised up a calf and they worshipped the calf. And God judged them. And He's telling these people, that's your history. Those are your fathers. Those are your ancestors. That's how they responded to the law. 
And then he goes on and he asks this great question. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? That's pretty penetrating. Their fathers persecuted all the prophets. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. See how the intensity is growing here? Not only did they kill all the prophets, they even killed the ones who prophesied about the coming of the righteous one. And of course, they know that he's referring to Jesus. And then he says, ratcheting it up even another notch, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And once again, he's laying the death of Jesus right at their feet. You who received the law. You think I'm speaking against the law. You think you have this great veneration for the law. Oh, how we love the law. What does Stephen say? You who received the law delivered by angels. You didn't keep it. You didn't keep it. You're a bunch of lawbreakers. You're just like your fathers. And how did they respond? You're right. You're right, Stephen. Not even close. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. You figure, can you picture that? Pastor knows he's not connecting when he sees people nodding off, but he really gets concerned when he starts to see the teeth. Stephen sees the teeth. They're grinding their teeth. They are ticked. Notice the contrast. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. Isn't that something? Gazed into How can he look into heaven? We think way up there. Maybe it wasn't way up there. Maybe it was right here. We, we don't know. Gazed into heaven. Because God gave him a gaze into heaven and saw two things. The glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then this is so glorious, Stephen gets sidetracked. It's like he forgets that he was giving this sermon. He forgets that he was getting to the application. And he forgets that they're absolutely enraged in him because he is so distracted. Wouldn't you be? And what does he say? Behold, I see the heavens open. And I think he was stunned. I really do. I think he was stunned by what God was showing to him in this instant. Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He's right there. He is absolutely taken away by what's happening. He sees the glory of God. But Paul tells the sufferings of this world are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us or to us. Stephen sees this glory before he dies. And I think it enables him to endure everything that he goes through. And we're going to wonder, how is he able to do this when he's being stoned? It's because he is so enraptured By the glory of God. Nothing else matters. When you see the glory of God, that's all you see. And it changes you forever. But he also sees something. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This morning we said the Apostles' Creed. We talked about 
And He again rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. But here He's standing. What? Why, why is He standing? Why, why is Jesus not sitting? The Son of Man is viewed here in light of the legal terminology of the Old Testament, one commentator says, where the judge is described as sitting, the witnesses as standing, and at the right hand as the place of the vindicating witness. As Stephen had confessed Christ before the unbelieving Jews who took his life, so Christ would confess him publicly in heaven. Condemned by the earthly tribunal, Stephen would be vindicated by the heavenly one. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is usually seated. But when his martyr is on trial, he stands up at the right hand and he bears witness to Stephen. Vindicating him to the judge, God the Father, stating that he is innocent. They're not done though. Verse 57 says, But they cried out with a loud voice, stopped up their ears and rushed at Him. You ever seen little kids do this? Maybe you did it when you're a little kid. You don't want to listen to someone. Say, no, I'm not listening. I'm not listening. I'm not listening. They did something like that. They have a loud voice. They're stopping their ears. We're not listening to what you have to say. They're rushing at Him. They're mad. Demonically mad, perhaps. And then they cast Him out of the city where they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, this is interesting. They drag him out of the city. Saul goes with them. Saul is right there. What do the witnesses do? The witnesses take off their garments while they're stoning him and they put them at the feet of Saul. Why are they doing that? One commentator writes, Stoning somebody to death, even somebody as young and healthy as Stephen, is not easy. He goes on and he says, You do not get the job done with the first few rocks and broken bottles. And even after you get the man down, it is a long, hot business. To prepare themselves for the workout, they strip to the waist and got somebody to keep an eye on their things till they were through. The man they got was a fire-breathing, young, arch-conservative Jew named Saul who was there because he thoroughly approved of what was going on. That gives us a graphic picture of what was taking place. They're taking off their clothes so that they can throw their rocks without being hindered by a coat or whatever they were wearing. And it's really brutal. It is something to endure stoning. It does take a while. But here's what we need to realize, because right about this point we're thinking, oh, this is terrible, and it is terrible. And we're thinking, Stephen went through this. But God sustained him. His glory sustained him through this whole process. And as they were stoning Stephen, that's so graphic, as the rocks were pummeling his body, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Just like Jesus died. And falling to his knees. Again, that's graphic. Perhaps the rocks are taking their toll. And now he falls to his knees because the rocks are coming. But notice, he prays. And we need to pause here for a moment. How was he able to pray? 
he is being stoned to death. And again, just think of how physically brutal. How was he able to do that? Because God is sustaining him and empowering him. So again, it's almost as though he's oblivious to the rocks. And I can't say for sure. I don't know. But it seems as though he's oblivious to the rocks. And he's more concerned about Lord Jesus receiving his spirit, the Jesus who may be right in front of him. And he's even more concerned that the people who are stoning him are forgiven. And then he prays again, just like Jesus. Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Do not hold this sin against them. Forgive them. Absolutely remarkable. But he was able to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Which really is a a beautiful depiction of such an ugly and brutal execution. But he just falls asleep because he's received by Jesus Christ. And then Luke, discreetly introducing Saul, who would become the main figure in the book of Acts a little later, just says, and Saul approved of his execution. Saul was right there, probably again a part of the council. Saul was right there. The garments are laid at his feet. He's watching over the garments of the witness. And when it's all said and done, Saul gives a hearty Amen of approval. He's not disgusted. He's not disappointed by what had taken place in the least. He thinks it was very appropriate. Now, what's going on here? What can we take away from this? Many things. Let me just draw your attention to two points. First of all, often people ask, I don't know if I could endure martyrdom. If my life was on the line, I don't know if I could be faithful. And I say without hesitation, yes, you could. Not because of you, but because of God. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. That's the key. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. Whatever God brings your way, you will be able to endure it. And for most of us, it will not be stoning to death. But regardless of what we may have to endure, we can. Because God is faithful and He will give us the ability to stand up. We will be able to encourage, be able to continue on. And a final point, and this is from Joseph Son, who uh, has written a doctoral dissertation on martyrdom. Uh, he writes us about the prayer of Stephen, and I think this is fascinating. He said, The meaning of this prayer, Father, forgive them, he says, is found not in the imitation of the Master or in the greatness of a forgiving heart, although these are certainly a part of it. The primary point is the function of witness. He is here to testify to the love of God manifested in His Son, Jesus Christ. His job is not only 
to express it in his verbal testimony, but to demonstrate it by his own suffering and by his love that forgives the ones who inflicted the pain. He is there to meet the hate with love and to conquer the evil by accepting suffering and by forgiving the ones who inflicted it. He goes on and he says, I call this the aggression of love. The witness is not a passive victim, but the aggressor, the fighter. He takes the initiative to the end. Even his last prayer, by which he entrusts his soul into the hands of his master, is part of that aggressive testimony. It is a demonstration of a victorious spirit to the very end. Stephen's whole life is a testimony. So not only are his words testifying to Jesus Christ and he's backing that up with Scripture, but his life and even his death to the very end continues to be a testimony of the love of God. Now, let me ask you, if you were there and you saw his face radiating like an angel, and then you saw him being stoned to death, and you're watching all this, you're right there, you're watching this go down, you're standing right there, and you're watching the rocks bounce off him, and you're seeing him pray to Jesus into your spirit, I trust my hands, and then you hear him ask God that you would be forgiven, would that have an effect upon you? Would you ever forget what you had just seen? We know that one man was changed forever by what he saw. Saul, also known as the Apostle Paul. And later in Acts 22, 19 and 20, he says, Lord, they themselves understood that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in Thee. And when the blood of Thy witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the cloaks of those who were slaying him. He says, I was there. I was there and I gave my approval in addition to hunting down Christians from house to house, imprisoning them and beating them. And Paul not never got over the fact that he was a persecutor of the church. Never got over what he had done. But he was changed. And he was changed in part because of Stephen. Not only because of what he said, but because of how he died. His whole life was a testimony. And the way he died was like a magnaphone just making his words all the louder, all the clearer, all the more powerful. So that at least one man years later would say, wow, that was powerful. Now I know why. Now I know what was going on. And we're called to live as witnesses as well. Again, this is our calling as Christians. To bear witness to Jesus Christ. To speak up when the opportunities come. And to live a life that backs up what we say. So that even though they accuse us of doing wrong, they may see our good deeds and Lord willing one day give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Let's close in prayer. 
Father, we thank You for the example of Stephen's life and death. Father, thank You for his faithful witness. Father, will You strengthen us? Help us to be bold witnesses. Help us not to hold back. We live in a society that wants to silence us. May we not be silenced. Again and again, we see that they wanted to silence the early disciples, but they would not remain silent. They could not help but speak about what they had seen and heard. May we say the same things. I have to speak up. I have to mention how Christ has changed my life, regardless of the consequences, regardless of what relationships may be hurt. Father, fill us with Your spirits so that we can follow in the footsteps of Stephen and in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.